was so heavy. Uh, just people uh, just overwhelmed by the vicissitudes of life. And not only overwhelmed by them, but participating in increasing it uh, due to unskillfulness, due to confusion, due to, conf to fear. She said, um, I didn't hear you talk much about fear as a cause of things. I said, because fear is not a cause, you know. Fear is a result of something. You have to get to the cause to figure out uh, what, why the fear, why the fear is there, you know. And so we really started um, uh, asking them to like go deeply into their own hearts and mind. And when we got to heart, they were like, "We don't know what that is. We don't even know where that is." You know, everything had to be mechanical. Everything uh, had to be um, uh, reasonable. And I said, well, like, you know, like if you live by reason and this is the result of that, maybe you just need to try something else. You might need to look. You might need to tap someplace else. You know, and I'm not against reason. I'm all for reason when your reasoning is reasonable. You know, but if it's not, then maybe we should look somewhere else. Maybe there's some other part of us that needs to be uh, nurtured or nourished or fed. And maybe that just doesn't like fit in our paradigm. I mean, one lady came in for her 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 one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. I mean, they're voluntary. You don't have to sign up for them if you don't want to. And if you do have something that you want to ask, you know, in private or something that you want to like talk through or whatever, then then you sign up. So when she came in, she said, the first thing I want to tell you is that I'm totally pragmatic, totally reasonable. I'm an atheist, and I don't even believe in any of that. I said, how's that working for you? And she said, well, I'm anxious. Um, I hate people. Um, and, uh, you know, and she went through this whole, whole litany. So I said, and, and so what are we going to talk about? I mean, because I just wanted to know whether I was going to waste five minutes or whether there was going to be a reason for us to be together and a dialogue, you know. Um, and so I wonder, like, what are you looking for and why are, you, why are you here? If it's to tell me that you don't embrace anything I'm talking about, you don't have to tell me. <laughs> you could just keep that to yourself. I'm perfectly okay. And I don't even need to know, you know. Uh, so, so, so it's like this uh, way that we have of, of feeling like we have to interject, you know, uh, <laughs> our view into a situation or our... Or, uh, we just have to be, we just have to be heard, even when what we have to say is something that has us like a total mess, a total, a total wreck. And so uh, she said, oh, I see, I see where you're going. <laughs> and so I said, okay. So she said, well, let me tell you, I'm a, I'm a vet. And the problem that I have with veterinary science is that we now have something called um, uh, crisis um, it's some type of crisis intervention, and it's for a. Um, it's like using the interventions we use, like putting your pets on life support and things like that. And she said, "I just think we're going in a in a wrong way with this. You know, there is living, and with along with living, there is dying, and now." Uh, people, you know, they don't like each other, she said, me included, you know, but now we're projecting all of this lost love on, on our animals and we're doing things to them that uh, I just don't think we should, we should be doing to them. 
And it started me to thinking about the Dharma. And what I like about uh, Mahayana or Vajrayana practice. Because they consider the Dharma something that we do, not something that we think about. So when we're investigating the Dharma, we're hearing a Dharma talk or we're studying something about the Dharma. But studying the Dharma is not the same thing as cultivation. It's not the same thing as becoming the Dharma. It's a way of knowing something. But it's a tuition. It's a knowing something from the outside uh, rather than from the inside. But the inside, in here, is where we live. So, for the four days, the five days that we were there, we helped them find that flip, that space, where between outside and inside. And we started where the Buddha has a start, with the body comprised of the elements, earth element, uh, like that clay pot, uh, towel, wood floor, earth element. And we are also comprised of the earth element. We have like the bones and the, the tissues. And if we just saw it all as the earth element, that's external and this is internal. And he invites us to come and get acclimated, acquainted with the internal earth element in us. And then he takes us to the water element. And this is the rain, and there's the water that comes out your hose, out your spigot, and that can fill a glass. And if I hold it up, we'd say that's a glass of water. But if I drank it, I wouldn't say that it was a sack of skin filled with water. I say when I drank it, that's me. But he said it's just external water and internal water. You see, he's doing something here. He's, he's helping us to make, take one step away from the source of all our troubles, which is a, it's a preponderance and it's an overriding focus on me. Everything in our life revolves around this identity view, this concept of me. Me in relation to you, me in relation to my work, me in relation to my lover, me in relation to my job, me in relation to everything. And we take our identities from these things around us. And when we don't have them, we lose them, whether it's our mental acuity, or whether it's our house, or whether it's our partner. When those things are lost, then we feel lost. We feel confused because we have built, constructed an identity tethered to those things. Instead of just seeing everything like it is, this body becomes so important to me. And when my body changes, I have difficulty with it. When my mind changes, I have difficulty with it. And so he starts our practice right there, just getting acquainted with the laboratory of experience, the laboratory of life, which is this body.
And to see that even that cannot be considered I. Maureen made an important uh, comment and it stayed with me the whole retreat. She said, you know, if we isolate a cell and we ship it a thousand miles away under the right conditions, that cell, cell is still alive. So obviously it's not me. And if we think about it like that, it's really true. If we isolated and separated every cell in our body, even, anyone has the potential to stand alone and apart from me. So where then is the me? Can I be found in the body anywhere? The body is just earth. It's air. It's fire. It's water in space. And then he tells us to look at the rest of this heap that we are. Am I my thoughts? Thoughts come and thoughts go. Thoughts invade the mind. But my thoughts are synonymous to me with me. That's the structure of appearance for me, that I am my thoughts. But I was here before that thought came. And after that thought left, so am I my thoughts? I am not. If we look at it rationally, I am not thought. Well, maybe I'm my feelings. <laughs> you know, because I'm always like, I feel this way and I feel that way and I feelings you know and, and even if we don't express our feelings like uh, vocally I mean people can tell how we feel about things I mean in just our attitudes just in the way that we carry ourselves the way that we project ourselves the way you know am I my feelings but feelings also come and they go because the internal base the I sees something an external object consciousness arises and the three of those make contact and with contact comes feeling. I can either uh, like it or don't like it. So I have a pleasant feeling or an unpleasant feeling. Or I might even have a neutral feeling like I'm ambivalent about it. Or, you know, don't care one way or the other. I'm okay either way. You know. But there is still a judgment that is organized around that based on the feeling. That arose. That feeling could be based on a view that I hold. It could be based on some information that I have. It could be based on an experience that I had that says, whenever I see that, it means such and such to me. It can be based on my sense of conceit about what I know and that the one who's talking to me doesn't have the degrees I have and the training I have. So obviously, if there's a difference in opinion, I'm the expert. It could be, you know, it could be any of these things. It could be something that's obvious to us or a reason that's not obvious to us. You know, I have a, a great affinity for, for Chinese. I kept thinking, oh, in a previous life I must have been uh, a Chinese. But, you know, my mother worked at a Chinese laundry when she was carrying me. I heard Chinese all the time. So it sounds very, very familiar to me, you know. It could be either one of those two things. I don't know. It doesn't even matter. You know, what matters is right here, right now. We don't have to go back and try to dig up every reason for why we're experiencing something in a certain way. 
It doesn't really matter. It's just what do you do with whatever's right here, right now in front of you. Don't go all the way back there. You don't need regression therapy to find out, I don't like this person because in the last life he killed me. You don't need any of, any of that, you know. All we have to do is be right here, right now, and be truly aware of what is becoming, what is arising, what is being created right here, right now in this moment, and how shall I respond to that? I was thinking about our neighbor, and I think I've, I've mentioned it a few times that he used to come over and do work for us, and then I didn't see him for a few months. And when I saw him again, Punya Deep and I were at the, at the gas station, I could hardly recognize him. I was sitting in my car and he was putting gas in the car. I said, Punya Deep, is that Kevin? And so he said, I think so. And I jumped out the car and I went over to see him. You know, I didn't want to smile. I said, how are you? Because I could look and see he was really sick. You know, I'm thinking like, what should I say to him when I see him? And then I said, Kevin. You know, that's all I could say. Because I didn't want to say, Kevin, you look so bad. Kevin, are you sick? Kevin, what's wrong with you? Ke I, you know, it, it was just so obvious that he was so sick. And I said, Kevin. And I just embraced him. He said, yeah, I got that diagnosis, you know, I told you I was going to go check because um, I'm having so much trouble with my throat. And he says that, you know, I'm in fourth stage cancer. And, um, and I asked him, could we do anything for him, you know? He said, well, I'm going in the hospital now and I'm going to be there for two weeks. And, you know, um, when I come back home, and, and his, his house was his pride. He finally got a house, a little house. It's a not it's a no bedroom house across the street. You know, he's like crafting a little area for a bedroom. But it was his and he was so proud of it and he's gonna fix it up, you know, like it was a shack when he bought it, because he had such great ideas. Planning for the future, you know. Finally things getting in a place. He has something that he calls his own. And now this comes up. And knowing how he like, just liked his little place, he was always piddling in the yard, always doing something. I said, uh, I said we'll, we'll keep the yard straight for you when you come back. Don't worry about anything. I know you got, I can't help you with your garden because we couldn't take care of our own, so I'm not going to promise that. I said, but we can cut the grass. We can do little things like that. And then we'll come and see how we can support you when you return. And he said, okay. So I'm curious. I'd like to know who has been a neighbor to Kevin? Who has been a neighbor to Kevin? The one directly across the street. Like if you go out our drive, you'd go into his drive. Go out our street, you'd go into his. You know, and so I talked about it for a few times, and I was reminded of the time that when we can say all we want to say about church, but I was reminded of the time that when a church was in a neighborhood, if there was anybody sick in that neighborhood, somebody went to see about them. Somebody cared for them, somebody offered. They didn't like just drive in, have their little whatever they have, and drive out. And I'm wondering, you know, like we talk about these things. We talk about compassion. We talk about love and kindness. We talk about, you know, 
uh, concern for others. But how far does that go? Does it end at the back door there? You know, does any thought come up in anyone's mind beyond me and mine? If not, if not, we should be concerned. We certainly shouldn't think that we're any better than the ones, you know, all those ones that we condemn. Because we're really not. Just fooling ourselves. And so I like this teaching on the bodhisattva ideal. The one who hears the cries of the world and responds with compassion and power. And that means that although my heart is aching for him, when I go to see him, I put on a cheery face. I don't go and drag him down because I'm so dragged down and bombed out that he's dying. No, I go there with some energy to sustain and to uplift him, to hold him. But I have to really have that, you know. So we have to work on ourselves because we all have issues. Might not have that issue, but we all have some issue. When somebody comes to, to tell me, uh, like when we were doing the interviews, if there's a question you want to ask, now's the time. You get a chance. Because so many people, they don't have a sangha like this. The only time they get with other people uh, in the Dharma is when they come to a retreat. It's so precious that we have a place that we can gather, where we can meet with one another, where we can console one another, we can encourage one another, we can lift one another. And... So when they come for a one-on-one, rather than wanting to talk about their uh, practice or what they're doing, they want to tell their life story, you know. So to keep them from doing that, I start telling my stories in the, um, in the Dharma Hall. And after I get to about story number five, I said, and that's just the beginning. I haven't even scratched the surface of the dramas I can tell you. So that means that I don't need really to hear yours because I got a whole bunch of my own. And if we don't know how to file those boogers away, we'll drag them around like a dead body on our back. And we'll take it take them with us day after day after day after day. And so the Buddha teaches us a way of living and being in the world, a way of being just with what's in the present moment. If one is suffering from anxiety, that's about the future. The future's not here yet. I mean, that's absolutely no good. It serves absolutely no purpose except that it bogs down your mind right now when you need to be thinking about a solution. You can't because you're already into the fear of what's not going to happen or what is going to happen that you don't want to happen in the future. And when we're stuck in the past, whether it's because of regret, because of sorrow, you know, If it's past, it's past. It only stays with us if we choose to bring it up and relive it every day. And so he says to us, there's nobody, 
that can help us. He said, don't look to your sacred texts. They can't help you. He said, don't look to your, your friends. They're not in your head. They can't help you. He said, the only one who can help me is me. I have to decide where I want to live. Do I want to live in the past? Do I want to live in make-believe fairyland of a future that I make up in my head? And usually when we make up something, it's bad. You know, our mind never falls to the sunny side. You know, it's a, they did studies about this. They said that with five times, Maureen gives me all these scientific facts. It's five we're five times more likely to think a negative thought than a positive thought. So when people are hating on you, don't worry about it. That's just their propensity, you know? I mean, you don't even have to get offended. It's not even personal. Folk can't help themselves. This is our habitual tendency. We have to really work at cultivating a new tendency. And if you think that it can't be done. All you have to do is look at Maureen. If you need a happy pill, just don't take a dose of Maureen. It's like, she's like, like, so, whew. But she lets me see me, you know? I'm like, Maureen, get a grip. Get a reality check. And she says, I am. My world is like a David world, you know? Like, okay, okay. I thank you for that little bit because I needed a teaspoon of that. I don't want the whole dose, but I needed a teaspoon of that. And it's, and it's very helpful. It's very useful. Uh, and so I'm saying to you, don't let this harvest pass. Don't let it pass. Don't be forgetful hearers. But see how we can... Uh, take the teachings. They're marvelous. They're wonderful. And they really are pragmatic. And they really are reasonable. If we employ them in our lives. When we feel like going left. When we feel like leaning in to our habitual way. If we will uh, uh, arouse the effort to lean in a different direction, doesn't feel comfortable, doesn't feel like me, doesn't feel, uh, it's just not my way, it's not me, it's not what I want to do. But if your way, you, what you want to do, is keeping you bound and defeated and condemned and uh, without any sympathy for others and neurotic and fearful, then I like the way the Buddha teaches us because he says we are acquainted with all that. We know what that is. We know what it feels like. We know that it is our default mechanism. But he, but he said the way you overcome Hatred is through non-hatred. The way you overcome ill will is through non-ill will. The way you overcome cruelty is through non-cruelty. He uses the same word because you can identify the feeling that you're having that's making you feel so bad. He said, think the opposite of that. 
You know, he doesn't throw in a new word like to overcome hatred. You apply love. Like I don't, you know, my idea of love. I don't know. You know, different people have different ideas of of what that is. He says, but when you're hating and you say, I don't want to hate anymore, what what is it about that that you want to abandon? How does that make you feel? He says, go to the root of that and turn the mind to something that's the opposite of that. So that might be um, uh, when you are in your mind condemning someone for something, right in that moment, stop and turn your mind towards something redeeming about them. Something that you can praise them for. You're like, no, I'm not, I don't even feel that way about them. You know, find something that you can respect them for. Might not be a big thing compared to like the disrespect is piling up like this. You know, but find something that you can. We have to go against the grain the conditioning of our own mind. If we don't do that, then we're not practicing. And I tell you, every day, almost every minute of the day, then we could find ourselves in constant practice. Hmm? Yeah? So it's not like when we decide to get 15 minutes here to meditate or when we decide that we're going to all come together and, and talk about what a, a, a Dharma a Sutta means to us. But it's moment by moment watching the tendency of the mind to criticize, to reject, to find fault with. I talk about this a lot because this is really the job I have to point to that. I point to it for you, I point to it for me, I point to it, to it. Point to it. Not pointing to you, I'm pointing to that. Now, if the shoe fits, if it, you know, then we have to wear it. You know. But if we will do this, we will not have time to criticize and judge others. And we won't even take time to criticize and judge ourselves. We will just be looking for the antidote. This poison that I have, I can heal myself. Matter of fact, I'm the only one who can. Nobody else can do it. And that is our practice. Now, if you're practicing, usually we practice at something that we like and that we want to master. You know, if we sing or like singing, whether we can sing or not, we practice and we get better. If we want to play a sport, we practice and we get better. If we want to draw, we practice and we get better. If we want to learn a foreign language, we practice and we get better. We understand what this is. It's not a mystery word. But we get so confused around our spiritual practice. Like, what is that? No. Anything that we want to improve, we have a, there's a joy in going to it, even. And if you could think of our, our uh, dharmic practice like that, it would change for you. 
It wouldn't be always, uh, I'm not good enough, or I'm not bad, or I missed the mark again. It wouldn't be like that. It's like, oh, look at that. I'm going to get better and better at that. You know? Oh, caught myself sooner this time before I did that thing or said that thing or didn't do that thing that I said I was going to do or catching myself sooner. And there was some uh, uh, joy that comes with that, some sense of confidence that I can go in the other direction. I can make progress. I can overcome this tendency. I can get better at this. Not despising, you know, small beginnings and, and not, uh, not so much looking at what always what we're not doing, but look at what we are doing. That's good. Look at what we are doing. That's useful. Look at what we are doing. That's beneficial. Balancing our investigation and our inquiry in that kind of way. And if you keep looking, you will see how you're changing or how you're not changing. And then we can decide, each one of us, what we shall do for ourselves. There's nobody to evaluate our works speak for us. Our works are the result of our, thought, our words. And our words are the results of our thoughts. I like the fact that um, this Dharma reminds me that I don't have a judge in the sky. That my actions are my true home. And I have the capacity to know me. To know myself. And the capacity to be what I choose to be. I know it's going to take some work. And I'm working on me. How about you? That is the gospel for me. That is the good news for me. That I'm not at anybody else's mercy. But I'm at my own. And every single one of us could use some self-mercy now. And when we give ourselves this kind, then when we look at another, we know what to do for them. We know how to respond because we know now what we need. And we offer to others what we would want for ourselves. And I'm not saying that anybody has to do anything. I just asked the question because I wanted to know if it came up in anyone's mind about being a good friend to a neighbor or even just even thinking about him. When we moved here, first thing, the first person we met was him. He came over here to welcome us. Second was the lady back there. I wonder how many people speak to her. She's an old lady. All she does every day is check her mailbox twice so that she can just walk past some people. You know, if anybody just stops and says hello to her. I'm talking people who live here, who live across a shared drive from her. 
or the ones in directly across the driveway who park their their trucks on our lot, you know. I wonder how neighborly we are. And if you want to have good friends, you have to be a friend. Yeah. A couple of Thursdays would go. Oh, that wasn't Thursday, was it? It was two months ago now. We did a, a, a Dharma contemplation on the qualities of a good friend. A good friend gives what is hard to give. A good friend does what is hard to do. What does that mean to you? May you be well and happy and peaceful. May no harm come to you. May you always be able to meet with the inevitable difficulties of life. 